Today's scripture reading is Luke 23, 18-25. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. You may be seated. Thank you, David, for doing the scripture reading. And church, it's so wonderful to be with you. And if you're joining us online, glad to have you join us in that way too. Um, what a what a privilege it is to gather together, and what a privilege it is to open God's word together and learn from it. Well, Lance Armstrong was the winningest cycle the Tour de France had ever had. He won seven consecutive times from 1999 to 2005. And he was so successful that he even began to draw new fans to the sport. And what made Armstrong even more likable was that he had the underdog factor. Besides being an American, he he won these victories even after going through chemotherapy and surviving cancer. He gained a following here in the United States where cycling is relatively unpopular, and many people even sported his yellow Livestrong bracelets. And for seven years, from 2005 until 2012, he reigned as the Tour de France greatest of all time, until it was confirmed that he had been using unallowed performance-enhancing drugs, and he was stripped of all seven of his titles. The report concluded that Armstrong had been part of, quote, the most sophisticated, professionalized, and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. Successful is one way to put it, but scandalous is perhaps a better way of describing this. Scandals offend our sense of what is right. If I just mention Deflategate, or Tom Brady, or Enron, or O.J. Simpson, and the real or perceived scandals around these names, some of us, even as, we, as, as I say that, our blood is beginning to boil in us. And I haven't even mentioned any political scandals, religious, sex scandals, or racial scandals. Scandals make us angry because we intuitively know that in every scandal, there is, there's a great tragedy. When we hear about a scandal, we're, we're grieved. We become indignant, and we, we demand that something like this never, ever happens again. But what if I told you that you and I, that all of us are complicit in a scandal? And not, not just any ordinary scandal, as, as if there even was such a thing. What if I told you that we are all complicit in the greatest scandal in all of history, 
History's greatest scandal is how we receive the king. Turn with me to Luke. We're going to start in chapter 22, verse 66. But as, as you turn to Luke 22, let me give you some context of where we find ourselves. In the, in the weeks leading up to this, uh, this, this passage, Jesus has been telling the disciples how he was going to go to Jerusalem, and when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was going to be delivered in the hands, into the hands of the authorities, who would then put him on trial and abuse him and then kill him. And just hours before this, Jesus had observed the Passover with his disciples. The Passover is an annual observance uh, where, where Israel remembers their exodus from Egypt and how God brought them out of their slavery in Egypt and made them his own people. And in, in, in this same meeting, in this same Passover gathering with his disciples, Jesus reminds them of his identity as king. In Luke twenty two twenty nine, Jesus says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. But then strangely, in Luke twenty two thirty seven, Jesus poignantly quotes something from the prophet Isaiah about his suffering servant. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And within hours of speaking these words, Jesus is arrested at night and he is under the custody of the religious authorities. What Jesus had predicted would happen is beginning to come true. Jesus is about to stand trial and history's greatest scandal, of which we are a part of, is about to unfold. History's greatest scandal is how we receive the king. And as there's a few different aspects of this scandal, and we're going to unpack them, but the first one is that he is the ruler, but we want to rule. He's the ruler, but we want to rule. Look at verses 66 through 71. It says, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, whatever claims they thought Jesus might make about his identity as ruler, I'm sure that Jesus far exceeded them. In his response, Jesus refers to two of the most quoted Old Testament Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And in these two passages, they both refer to a human figure who will sit at God's right hand, the place where God's power resides. And this Son of Man will rule over all of creation, over every nation, for all time, with God's very own rule. 
So these religious rulers ask Jesus if he is Israel's Messiah, but Jesus effectively replies to them, I am the ruler of everything. I'm the one who rules with God's own rule. The religious leaders understand the implications of this statement. And so they ask, so you're the son of God? And it's just as much a, an, an, an incredulous statement as it is a sincere question. And though they don't believe it, they have spoken the truth about Jesus. And so Jesus simply affirms, you've said it. And for that, it is decided that Jesus must die. Jesus had said, you're not going to believe me. And sure enough, outraged, these religious rulers bring him then to the civil rulers. And so Jesus appears before Pilate, the Roman leader of that area, and the leaders present to Pilate charges that are intended to make Jesus seem as threatening to Pilate's rule as possible. They present Jesus as a king and as a threat to Pilate. So Pilate in Luke 23, verse 3 Similar to the religious rulers, he asks Jesus about his claim as ruler. So you're the king of the Jews? Pilate asks. And once again, Jesus replies, you've said it. The truth about Jesus has come from the lips of these rulers, and Jesus has affirmed it. He's guilty of being the son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and the King of the Jews. Pilate is, he's not quite sure what to do with this, so he he decides to pass Jesus along to Herod. Let's see what Herod thinks. And so when Jesus appears before Herod, Herod questions him, and after questioning him, Herod and Pilate are both in agreement that Jesus Whatever, whatever he is, whoever he is, he is not guilty of anything deserving death. And so Pilate wants to release Jesus. But the crowd he faces wants differently. And so they, there, there begins a power struggle between Pilate and the crowds he is facing about what to do with Jesus. Pilate, Pilate wants to show that he's the boss that he's ruling, but we see in this back and forth that it's really the crowd that's calling the shots. And in this back and forth, the crowd ultimately wins. And Pilate agrees to release Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who was himself arrested for trying to overthrow Roman rule so that he could set up his own kind of rule. So here you've got the religious leaders, you've got the Roman rulers, Pilate and Herod, you have the crowds, and you have Barabbas, each with their own vision of what rule should be. And the strange thing about this is that none of, none of these groups even like each other or get along with each other. They don't agree. But the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. As, as Tolkien might put it, you know when the, when the elves and the dwarves and the men and the hobbits and the wizards all gather together, 
and join forces, you know it's because they must believe that Mordor is really that bad. And the one thing that these, that these people can all agree on, in spite of their differences, is that Jesus must die. So everyone here, everyone here is compromised. The religious leaders were more willing to team up with the very Roman Empire who had been brutally oppressing them than they, than they were to follow their own rightful king and messiah. Pilate, likewise, he, instead of doing what he knew was the right thing to do, he capitulated to the crowds. He, he was in charge, but he's instead going with what they want to do. And he then becomes culpable in this man's death. He cared more about his own self-preservation as ruler than, than the rule of Jesus. And the great scandal here is that while each party is trying to assert their own rule, and they, while they're each trying to assert their own power, they're standing in the very presence of the ruler of the universe. But rather than submitting to his rule, they're trying to rule over him and over each other. It's, it's the scandal of history. But how are we a part of this scandal? Because we, none of us were there, none of us were physically present. This is a historical event, so, so we, we weren't there, so how are we, how are we a part of it? Well, we, we, we do the same things. We are, we are culpable and we are guilty of doing the same things, of trying to assert our own rule our own vision of what it means to live and how we should live then over that of Jesus, the ruler. When Jesus was in the garden, he prayed to, to God, God, not my will, but your will be done. But so often what, what our lives practically say to God is, God, not your will, but, but mine be done. It's, it's easy to say that Jesus is ruler, that he is our ruler. But it's another thing to, to say, you know, who actually wants to follow Jesus' teaching on generosity or on sexuality, on marriage, on, um, on loving your enemies, on forgiving others? We'd rather say, you know, no, no thanks, Jesus. I'm going to you may be ruler, but I'm going to do things my own way. And so we, too, do this. And our resistance to Jesus is, is sometimes shown by the compromises we are willing to make and the lengths we are willing to go to so that we don't have to submit to Jesus and instead can do our own thing. And because we won't all unify around who Jesus is and Jesus' rule. We split up into our various groups and tribes, each going back and forth in a power struggle, trying to get the upper hand over our opponents. We spend so much time trying to fight the opposition, we spend more time doing that than we, than we do trying to get behind and follow and lay down our power and follow Jesus. Sometimes as individuals or even institutions, we are we're, we're more willing to go along with the, the spirit of the powers of the age rather than humbly follow Jesus. And we, sometimes we compromise ourselves. We get behind, we get behind ideas or people or movements that, that we are fundamentally 
at odds with and disagree with, but we get behind them because we hope that by aligning ourselves with them in some way, they will do something for us. And we compromise ourselves in that way. And even as I say that, some of us, it's, it's easy to just think about, oh yeah, yeah, these people or, or that guy. But then, but then we miss the point that we are the ones who do this. It's not just, it's not just everyone else, it's, it, is, it is us. It is you and I, each one of us, who, do, who does this. Pilate betrayed his own convictions. He acted out of self-preservation rather than courageously following Jesus and trusting him with what would happen. We do the same thing. Now, hear me, as, 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 as people who live in a broken, fallen world, living as a follower of Jesus is incredibly complex. Often there are, usually, in fact, there are no easy answers. It requires a lot of wisdom but I trust that as we, as we continue to rediscover Jesus' kingdom, as we open our minds to, Jesus, to God's word, and as we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's voice, I trust that God will show us the ways that we have likewise compromised and been complicit and scandalously lived according to our own rule rather than Jesus's. The first aspect of history's greatest scandal is that he is the ruler, but we want to rule. But the second aspect is that he was accused, but we are the guilty. He was accused, but we are the guilty. Time and time again in this passage, in this story, we see that almost everything Jesus is accused of, his accusers are themselves guilty of. The religious rulers, when when Jesus affirms his identity as the Son of God, they became enraged because no doubt they, they thought that Jesus, in making the statement, was blaspheming God. But they are the ones who are standing in the presence of God's Son, treating him with blasphemous contempt. They are guilty of this, not Jesus. And when Jesus is brought before Pilate, the religious leaders accuse Jesus. They charge him with misleading the people and with forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. But who's, who's really guilty of these charges? Many times in the gospel, Jesus is at odds with these religious authorities. He's, he's, he is warning against their practices. He's calling them, among other things, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, blind guides. These religious authorities were entrusted with being shepherds of Israel, shepherds of the people. But in God's eyes, they were failing, as is evidenced by this, this, very, this very event, that they are, misleading, they are misleading the people and leading them away from their own Messiah. And additionally, these, these religious rulers, they're, they're pretending to be buddies with Pilate, but they're no friends of Rome. This is exactly why they despise the tax collectors, because the tax collectors are the ones who, who, who gathered and collected tribute for Rome. After Pilate responds that he finds no guilt in Jesus, the religious rulers urgently shout back, he stirs up the people. 
But think about this. Who is the one? Who is the one here that is, that is getting everyone all riled up? Who is raising the temperature and the tension between Rome and the Jewish people? Is it not these religious rulers? Again, they are wrongly accusing Jesus of what they are guilty of. What about Herod? When Jesus appears before Herod, Jesus is mocked as a fool, as a joke. But Herod in this passage, is, he is portrayed as someone who is he's totally clueless. He doesn't have any idea of what's going on, and he only has trivial interests. So Jesus remains silent. He refuses to stoop to the level of this Roman governor by answering a fool according to his folly. And so when you put Jesus and Herod next to each other, it's Herod who looks small. What about the crowd? When Pilate again says that Jesus is innocent, the crowd, in a fit of madness, yells in verses 18 and 19, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Do you see, do you see what's happening here? They are accusing Jesus of leading an insurrection against Rome, of threatening Rome, but they are the ones who are demanding the release of an insurrectionist. They don't care about justice. They don't care about stopping an insurrection. They just want Jesus dead. It's, it's scandalous. And in verse 21, they shout, crucify, crucify him. They shout, they insist, and they demand that Jesus be killed. And so they have Jesus, an innocent man, murdered in the city. And in doing so, they become as guilty as Barabbas, who himself murdered in the city. And even Pilate and Herod, even though they found Jesus innocent, they nevertheless deliver him over to the will of the people to be crucified. And they become culpable in the guilt of the death of Jesus. At some point, we, we have to ask ourselves, who is really on trial here? Pilate appears nervous and weak, but Jesus is as confident and as authoritative as ever. Jesus, uh, Jesus is the one who is being accused, um, and he is the one that the accusers are asking all the questions, but Jesus is the one drawing out all of the confessions. Jesus is, he, he is put on trial, but everyone else is shown to be guilty. Jesus is fulfilling the words that he quoted about the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. 
few verses later, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Both this passage in Isaiah and this passage in Luke are showing us the scandal that though Jesus was accused, we are the guilty. We have made a terrible mistake. So what are the ways that we do this? Where we, on the one hand, we accuse other, other people or we condemn one thing, but then we, we also, we do the same thing. And in doing so, we only accuse ourselves. It reminds me of uh, the experiences, some experiences I've had with some, some people I've known. Uh, I, I wonder if uh, you can relate to this. I wonder, have you ever noticed that it's, it's sometimes the people who complain most about dramatic people who are themselves the sources of the most drama? Or, or the people who are the most high-strung, who are, who are the ones who are yelling at everyone else to just chill? Or, or the people who, are, who complain the most about, oh, I just hate gossip, and I wish people would stop spreading rumors, that they're usually the biggest spreaders of gossip and rumors? The scripture shows us that he was accused, but we are the guilty. We would do better to accuse ourselves and despise these things in our selves. And if we sense the scandal in all of this, we will be saddened. We will even then be, become angry and indignant at ourselves. We will realize that we are the ones to blame, which leads us to the, the third and perhaps most shocking, most shocking aspect of this scandal, which is that he was condemned, but we can go free he was condemned, but we can go free. This happened at, one, one significant but over, easily overlooked aspect is that this happened on Passover, the day when Israel remembers their slavery from Egypt, God's provision through an a innocent substitute of the, of the Passover lamb. They remember their deliverance from Egypt, and they remember their identity as God's people. This happened, this event happened on the day of Passover. And everyone in this scene was guilty. The religious leaders were guilty. The Roman rulers, Pilate and Herod, were guilty. The crowds were guilty. Barabbas was guilty. We, too, are guilty. In history's greatest scandal is how we receive the king. On this Passover, God was doing a new thing. Just as Isaiah had said, there would be a new exodus where an innocent lamb would be sacrificed and condemned as a substitute so that the guilty could go free as God's own people. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus became the innocent Passover lamb, and he became the substitute for those of us who are guilty. And so the first two aspects of this scandal are bad news, tragic news. But this third aspect is good news. 
Because if we recognize, if we recognize that we were wrong, but then we, we, we receive the king in faith, we can go free to be God's own new people. And this passage even provides an illustration of this in the person of Barabbas to show us what this is like. The name Barabbas actually means son of the father. So here we have Jesus juxtaposed with Barabbas. One is the perfect son of the father. One is the depraved son of the father. One was murdered in the city and one committed murder in the city. One was the ruler Another one wanted to rule. One was innocent. One was guilty. And one was condemned. And the other went free. This passage is showing us that what literally happened to Barabbas may also happen to us. We also can become sons and daughters of the Father because Jesus, the one-of-a-kind, unique Son of the Father, was the substitute. He gave his life unto death so that those who are condemned to die can live. On this Passover, Jesus was showing a way out. He's bringing a new people out of captivity. I wonder sometimes what happened to Barabbas. I wonder if Barabbas ever, if you ever heard the full story of what happened to Jesus, how Jesus was crucified how he was buried, and then days later he was resurrected again to new life. I wonder if Barabbas ever realized that just as he was literally physically freed from his captivity, that Jesus is now liberating a people for himself. I wonder if he ever realized that what happened to him on that day is just a, is just a picture, a microcosm of what Jesus is doing for all of creation and how he is setting setting it free and creating a new people for himself. I wonder, I wonder if Barabbas ever became one of Jesus' freed people. We don't know what became of Barabbas, but we can be a part of this scandal. We can enter Jesus' kingdom and enter this freedom by receiving the king. Though we have asserted our own rule over his, Though we stand guilty before him, the good news is that in history's greatest scandal is that, is that we can receive the king and then go free. And this is what we remember every time we observe the Lord's Supper. We remember history's greatest scandal and the good news of what Jesus has done. We are reminded of the gift of Jesus and how he is offered to us to receive.